0: Okay, let's let's just keep moving on. Again, if, if you just got here, if you're running on valley time, that's cool. We're gonna be in first John chapter one, verses one through four. Uh, As I mentioned, we're starting this new series uh, this morning, and uh, I thought it would be pretty cool to give you a little bit of background about the Apostle John and give you a little bit of background as to who he's writing to and why he is writing to them. Uh, And so I want to walk through these little sections, these little aspects of the life of John. Uh, If you have our notes from the website, this is not on there, so you can just kind of Uh, walk along with me or take some notes as we go. The first thing I want you to know is one of the names in which John is known by is John the Beloved. We see this throughout scripture, but in addition to that, he is also known as the one whom Jesus loved. In other words, John was not only one of Jesus's disciples, but he was considered Jesus's best friend. Do any of you have a best friend or you have a really, really close friend that knows a lot about you, if not everything about you? In part, what makes them a close friend or what makes them a best friend is how well uh, they know you and how well they can tell a story about you because of the amount of time they have spent with you. And that's that's John. Because of the amount of time that he has spent with Jesus, he can tell you a lot about the person and work of Jesus. So John the Beloved was known as Jesus' best friend. John was an all or nothing type of person. Uh, Are any of you like that? Are any of you, like show of hands, because that's always fun, are you one of those like all or nothing, like the switch flips, you've made a decision and you just dive in, right? Sarai is one, so is Christina. Okay, so we got two people. With that being said, right, that's the kind of person John was. He was an all or nothing type of of person. Not everybody is like that. Some people tend to be a little bit, like they get reeled in slowly, they're kind of like working out the pros and cons, and then they might back up a little bit, and then they're kind of in, but they were lying, and they weren't really in to begin with, right? That's not the kind of person John is, but some are. And so the Bible records that John, uh, along with his brother James, uh, you can see this in Matthew 4, but John, along with his brother James, left the family business so that they would follow Jesus. It was an all-or-nothing type of approach to his pursuit or to his uh, start with his walk with Jesus, in this letter that we're going to be walking through you're going to see a lot of all or nothing type statements uh, from john and and the reason he does that is because he is he is challenging us in our in our salvation he is challenging the condition of our hearts and he is also challenging ultimately our relationship with jesus and one another so john the beloved jesus's best friend john the guy who was all in right Number three, this is something that uh, I I really wanted to share because I don't think we often think about this, but John said stupid things, right? Now, with that being said, have you ever said anything stupid or something that you regret, right? Like everybody has, right? Uh, Everybody has said something that they regret. Some of you are thinking about what you said this morning. And so with that, John was one of those guys. Uh, And I often think that we tend to think that that was only Peter, Peter was the one who put his foot in his mouth. Peter is the one who always wanted to fight. Peter was the one who said foolish and brash things, right? But it was also John. And so I figured um, in light of all of these scripture references, I'd walk you to one. And this is in uh, Luke uh, 9. You could just listen to this. This is in Luke 9, beginning in verse 51. And so this is what he writes. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, uh, that is Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who, were, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people, that is the Samaritans, the people did not receive him because his face was toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, the brothers, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he, that is Jesus, turned and rebuked them. So here's what's happening, right? Uh, Jesus has his face set towards Jerusalem, and Samaritans are rejecting Jesus's notion of Jerusalem. and uh, And we see James and John get kind of offended for Jesus, right? And so what they inevitably what they're saying is, "Hey, do you want us to just summon like fire and brimstone, and you just want hell to come up and burn these people?" And Jesus looked, at them, looked, like, turned and looked at them and was like, Callate, por favor. Like, just, no. No, that's not what we're going to do, right? Like, he was rebuked along with his brother. He said foolish things, he said things that he regretted. Many of you, again, might be thinking of some of the things you said this morning, right? So, John said some of those things. It's not just Peter. In addition to that, John and his brother James were known as the tag team duo of the Sons of Thunder. Right, so you could tell they love to to cause a little bit of trouble. They like to be instigators sometimes, or maybe they they thought uh, or they spoke before they thought. Like I could I could relate to that. I'm one of four boys in my family, uh, and this morning I was in an argument with my brother uh, because he, he he doesn't have the best, or he doesn't always have a personality or a sense of humor. And so he sends me this message that was very low key, but I thought it was very serious. And as I'm like getting dressed, I'm yelling back and forth with my brother uh, because we're idiots. And and so I, I get the whole sons of thunder thing, I think. Nevertheless, in this letter to the early church, uh, by this time, I should say, by the time that John writes this epistle, he's an older man, right? He is an older man. He is an older pastor. He's, he's anywhere between the ages of, of 75 and 85 years of age. He's walked through a ton. He is the last surviving apostle of the 12. And he is the only apostle uh, that was not a martyr, but he was persecuted. And so he's writing in the sense of like times are changing, things are happening all around him, his friends have all passed away, they, they weren't just, they didn't just die of old age, they were arrested, they were uh, persecuted, they were beheaded, they were murdered, and it's just him. And so some threats to the church are coming uh, uh, to his attention and he wants to address a couple of groups of people and we're gonna talk about them in just a minute. But he wants to address a couple of groups of people but he does so not from a position of anger. He does so with, with uh, the heart of a father. He does so with the voice of a pastor. And so even though he is going to instruct and encourage and exhort and rebuke Christians, He does so out of love. He does so out of care. He does so because he wants the best for them. He does so because he wants Jesus to be at the center of everything they do think and believe. And so as I mentioned, he he writes to a couple of groups of people. And and two of those groups that I want to highlight, I believe, kind of interact with our time today and so the first group of people that, that, John, uh, that John is writing to are, are young Christians. See, around this time, there's already about second or there's about second and third generation Christians. And when I say young Christians, I don't necessarily mean in age, but it does uh, pertain to young in the faith that they have not been following Jesus very long. And so he writes to young Christians who are questioning Christianity or questioning the person uh, and work of Jesus. And to an extent, that's not necessarily a bad thing. They're coming to these uh, conclusions or they're having questions about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so that's not necessarily a bad thing. The challenge, however, is that many of these Christians are what the Bible records as lukewarm, That they aren't all in. They have one foot in, one foot out. That they're indecisive. And so John wants to address them. And that might be some of you where you kind of have one foot in, one foot out in terms of who Jesus is and and, and fellowship with one another and what is the church and all of those things and and the the teachings of God's word. You might have one foot in and one foot out. Uh, Your life tends to be marked not by all or nothing, but yeah, but. You know what I'm saying? And so John is addressing young Christians who tend to be lukewarm, not necessarily all in. The other group of individuals that he is addressing are Gnostics, or individuals who are uh, big on intellect, kind of like the Stoics or the philosophers of his day. Essentially, their argument is that salvation is through intellect, that salvation is actually just something that we need to become aware of, and then we're good to go. What is dangerous about this uh, type of teaching, particularly in John's day, is that these Gnostics, these intellects, are coming from within the church. This isn't necessarily teaching that's coming outside or threatening the church from the outside. This is coming from and breeding from within the walls of the church. And so they begin to question the deity and the humanity of Jesus. And so John is ultimately going to challenge them. And as they are questioning, as they are challenging other young Christians, they are also trying to take them away, take them out of the church, take them out of fellowship with God. In one another. Now, why that matters for you and I is because oftentimes we can look at the message of the gospel and see it primarily as a message that you and I take outside the walls of the church and quickly forget that it is also the same message that you and I ought to minister to one another with. And part of the reason we do a poor job at that is because you and I often assume that everyone here, because we're on the Sunday gathering, knows the gospel. That because you and I are in community, in a missional community together, or that we meet regularly, we assume that we know the gospel because we might have a fish on our, on our vehicle, we might have a wall in our house, or we may be engaged in fellowship to an extent. And I think that's something that's going to be very important to us. If we look back a couple of weeks ago, we walked through this series called Our Faithful Pursuit. We finished that last week. And one of the first things I told you was that I believe that the Spirit is really pressing into us this development, this maturity in our, for lack of a better word, spiritual maturity. And this is one of them, that just because we're here on a Sunday morning, uh, we're going to assume that one another, we know the gospel And so what tends to happen, what tends to be dangerous for you and I in that assumption is that the gospel goes from being good news to good advice. It goes from being something proclaimed and ministered to to something assumed. It goes from being good, great, new news to something that is old and familiar. It goes from being sufficient to idealized. And so you and I can't assume that just because we're here today, we understand and know the gospel. We must proclaim and minister to one another the gospel of Jesus, not just good advice. One of the things that John is going to do uh, by exposing our hearts as he does the people in his letter is that he is going to press into us using the gospel. In fact, that, that is his biggest uh, offensive weapon, if that's what you want to call it. His biggest offensive weapon to press in against the teaching that is coming from within the church and even some of the threats that are coming from, without, uh, from outside the church. John is going to press in using the gospel and ultimately... Some of the things that John is, is saying is that the Christian life is one of true doctrine. Now, that, that alone might intimidate some of you and it might sound scary and like, whoa, I don't, I don't know about that. But, but if you say that Jesus is God, you need to know that that is a theologically dense statement. So, so doctrine matters. The this, this set of beliefs upon which we set our foundation on matter. Some of you might say, I I don't really like doctrine. I'm just all about Jesus. That is a doctrinally dense statement. So true doctrine matters. What we believe matters. Because as John is going to tell us, he's going to tell us about true doctrine. He's going to tell us about obedient living. What we matters, or excuse me, what we believe shapes how we live. In other words, you and I are not obedient for obedient for some random reason. We are obedient as a result of what God has done for us in Christ. We are not obedient just to be moral people. We are obedient because we are redeemed people. And so John presses in using the gospel in order to teach us about true doctrine and obedient living and finally fervent devotion. That when it comes to our faith, it's going to be encompassed with devotion, with a heart that longs to pursue God and a heart that longs to pursue one another for the sake of the gospel or as we learned last week for the glory of God's name and our good. And in these 5 chapters that we're going to walk through over the next couple of months, John is pressing into true doctrine, obedient living, and fervent devotion. The reason we titled this series Walking in the Light is because my hope my prayer is that our hearts and our motives would be exposed through God's word as they pertain to our love for God, our love for one another, and that that would lead us to repentance. It would lead us to praise. It would lead us to worship. And so, with that introduction being said, let's dive into 1 John. Again, we're looking at the first four verses. So I'll read and then I'll pray. Here's what John writes. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let me pray. God, as we come before You in worship, uh, as we come before You in worship, Lord, would You... Would you expose our hearts through your word? God, that those who who know Jesus would come to know him better this morning. That those who, who don't know Jesus would come to know Jesus this morning. God, as we unpack and dig into this section of your Apostles' letter God, may the centrality of what we're trying to go or what we're trying to do be the person and work of Jesus. More than anything, may this be about Jesus. God, we thank you for this opportunity to worship alongside each other. I pray that I would be set aside. Holy Spirit, I pray that it would be you at work. I pray that it would be you speaking. I pray that you would do a work in the hearts and minds. Of everyone who's here. Um, We know that you're present. We're just asking that you would, uh, in addition, be at work. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I gotta drink coffee. Okay, if you have the notes... On the notes, there are several questions, and if you like the notes, they tend to be online, right? At Storehouse website, they tend to be online. The reason I'm I'm opening up with if you have the notes is because some of the questions that are on the notes, I ended up not liking. And so I'm going to change them as we go forward. The first question that's on the notes is, what is Christianity? Uh, I don't like that question. Uh, I want to change it. Uh, The question I want to change it to is, who is Jesus? I think that is a more appropriate question because I think that is ultimately the heart of that first question. If we're asking about Christianity, then the heart of that question really is, who is Jesus? And this is a question that has been around for thousands and thousands of years who is Jesus? We can look to the pages of the New Testament, including the Gospel of John, and we see this teacher, this Pharisee named Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus at night and essentially is asking, who are you? Fast forward, we can look to places like Matthew 16, where Jesus is with the disciples, and Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? And then they respond by saying, well, some say that you're Elijah, some say that you're a prophet. And then he cancels their response and then he goes on to say, well, who do you say that I am? Jesus challenges them with the same question that is surrounding him in his day. Before you and I come to know Jesus, that tends to be the question we ask. Well, who is Jesus? I can remember becoming a Christian where Jesus just wrecked me and changed me and and saved me. And I remember walking to my pastor and saying, man, I want to follow Jesus. And he goes on to ask me why. And the first thing I said was, because if you say he is who he says he is, then he's going to do a work in me. The heart of a question like that of what is Christianity or what is the church all about, the heart of it really is who is Jesus. And if we are left to our own understanding, we can come up with some pretty bizarre and odd conclusions. In her song, He Loves Me by Brittany Howard, I'm a fan of, she writes that she doesn't go to church anymore. She doesn't need forgiveness and that she can do what she wants because God loves her, because she knows what love is and means. And while it may sound bizarre, that may not be too far from what we thought previously. And if we're honest, it might not be too far from where our thinking sometimes goes. But more than anything not so much about the question. It's not so much the question about the church. It's not so much the question about what we do or the things that we do, but who Jesus is and what he does. You ever seen the movie Kindergarten Cop with Arnold Schwarzenegger? It's one of like the best movies, right? I love it. In fact, it goes down as number one on his list. He goes on to say in the movie, he, he plays this detective, John Kimball, and he is undercover uh, as a kindergarten teacher and what he is trying to do is, uh, he's trying to find one of his students' fathers, or excuse me, he's, this criminal who he's after, he's trying to find his son. And so he's trying to find his son in this classroom of kids by asking the question and playing the, the notoriously famous game, who is my daddy and what does he do, right? <laughs> That's the game that John Kimball plays in this, this scene of Kindergarten Cop. Much like we're not going to necessarily play a game, right? But nevertheless, that question of who is Jesus or who is the Father significant. It's significant. And that's where John meets us in verses 1 through 4. In fact, we're going to primarily, in this section, look at verses 1 through 3. And so the first thing that John tells us is that Jesus is historical, That's the first thing that John tells us, that Jesus is historical. Look at verse 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of God life. Elsewhere in this section, John says that he is testifying to what he has seen. The word testify is a legal term that suggests someone who takes the stand to tell the truth upon whatever is going on. So John is telling them, excuse me, John is testifying because at this time there is no social media, there is no Facebook, there's no Instagram or clever hashtag, right? He is testifying based on his eyewitness account. And he walks us through how this is true. He goes on to say, from the beginning which we have heard. So when he's talking about which we have heard, he's referring to the prophecy about the coming of the Messiah from the Old Testament. So he is telling them, I have heard the prophecy. I remember hearing of the prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. I've I've read what was written through the prophets. And then he continues and he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. So he's saying, I walked with Jesus. Not only did I learn and hear about the coming of the Messiah through the written word from the prophets, I have also walked with him. I have seen Jesus. I am actually one of the surviving eyewitnesses of Jesus. Jesus. And he continues, and he says, with our eyes which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. He's not just talking about him him seeing him physically, but that he touched him, that he touched Jesus, that he witnessed, saw, and experienced the resurrected Christ. Now, with that being said, when we look at not just John, but guys like Peter and James uh, and Jude and Paul, one of the qualifications of an apostle was that they had an experience with the risen Christ, that they saw the risen Christ because that is where they were commissioned and received authority from. And so John is putting that on the table. John is saying, I was there when Jesus dwelt among us. I saw him. I hung out with him. In addition to that, I was at the foot of the cross when he was crucified. And I also saw him resurrected. Jesus is historical. The second thing that John tells us is that Jesus is God. I don't think this is on your notes. Jesus is God. If you look at verse 2, he writes... The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. There's that word. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The phrase, the life manifest, tells us or is an indication that God became man. That God entered into human history as the man, Jesus Christ. That he took on bodily form. He was fully God and fully man. And in addition to that, Jesus made some pretty big claims. For instance, he said that he did not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick. Elsewhere, he says he came to seek and save sinners. That upon him dying on the cross, he would die in our place for our sin. And for all those who turn in belief and repentance in Jesus, he here's a fancy word, He imputes His righteousness. In other words, He gives us His righteousness. He pays our debt with His credit. That is, for the Christian, the righteousness that you walk with and the righteousness that you have was not gained based on your merit, but on the merit and obedience of Jesus. Jesus is God. Number three, Jesus is personal. If we take both verses one and three, what John is telling us is that God entering into human history as the man Jesus Christ combats all other forms of religious thought. That God entered into our world. That He dwelled among us. He got hungry like us. He had to pay bills like us. He had to go to work. He suffered just as we suffer. And what makes Him personal is not only that He dwelled among us, but that He can sympathize with us. It is what the author of Hebrews says that we have a a great high priest who can sympathize with us. Jesus is, is personal. In other words, he doesn't just rescue sinners and say, deuces, you're good. He is incredibly and inevitably and altogether personal. Number four, Jesus is transformational. That is, an encounter uh, like salvation through Jesus alone is transformational. You see, Jesus rescuing sinners, it's this one-time thing with lifelong implications. That is that we receive a new heart and we receive new minds and we are now redeemed. That the life we used to live, we do not live anymore. We put on what Paul says, the new self and the old self dies. That our life after Jesus saving us, that is making us right with God, is completely different. And and this is a theme that John is going to push over and over and over again in this epistle. That if you've had this encounter with Jesus, if you have been saved by Jesus, not only should your life bear fruit, but your life should look nothing or your life should be completely, radically different than who you once were. Number five, Jesus is the grace of God. Elsewhere in Titus, Paul says that grace appeared. That is, that Jesus entered into human history and he was proclaiming the gospel. We could say it this way, that grace is something that we proclaim. Grace is something that we proclaim. And I want to park here for a minute because one of the things I notice within the church is that oftentimes we're not necessarily or fully, I'm going to use the Christianese word, sharing the gospel, right? Earlier this week, I had a conversation with someone and they were telling me about um, this individual that, that they've been, I guess, uh, sharing life with. And they begin to tell me about this individual and they begin to say that things have changed, that this person is different Um, that they're asking questions about scripture, they're asking questions about Jesus, and uh they're, they're participating in some of the things that they got going on, and uh, they go on to tell me, I, I think this person is ready to be baptized. And, and at first, I was like, man, praise God, that's awesome, that, that's, that's wonderful. And so I then go on to ask, and it really kind of felt to them like I was popping their, 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 their balloon, right? Because I was like, man, so, so have you shared, have you proclaimed the gospel to them? Like, in the best understanding, can they, can they tell you what the gospel is? And all of a sudden, the conversation got awkward. The conversation got awkward because the first response was, that's, that's a really serious question. It is. It is a very serious question. Because the gospel is not only salvific, but it has implications. And so I pressed on again. So, so did you share the gospel then? Well, they're asking questions, and, and they're, they're, they're consistent. Awesome. Praise God. Did you... Did you like vocalize the gospel? No, I don't think we have. Well, before we move forward, you should proclaim the gospel. One of the things that I mentioned early on is that you and I can assume that we know the gospel, we are living... Uh, in light of the gospel, just because we're here on Sunday, just because we're in groups, and just because we do life together. And so as a result, I'm not saying that you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that I'm not a Christian. What I'm saying is that at some point, you and I tend to forget and assume the gospel just because we're under the banner of church. And so as a quick review, I want to look at what the gospel isn't versus what the gospel is. Okay. I want to start with what it isn't. The gospel is not church attendance. Is it important? Yes, absolutely. Why is it important? Because this is called the communion of saints. This is where we get together and celebrate the work of God for us in Christ. That is why we sing. That is why we are worshiping. That is why we gather. And church attendance is not the gospel. Being a good person is not the gospel being a good person, remember, being moral is a good thing, but it is the result of what has been done for us in Christ. And so if you preach only, be a good person, do a good thing, you water down the gospel, and you water down the person and work of Jesus. All right? Because if you're a good person, and you just do good things, then what was the point of Jesus dying for you? Number three, the gospel is not heritage. Parents, and I'm speaking as one, I love you. But just because your kids are being raised in, under your roof and under your magnificent rules does not make them a Christian. And that is something super common. Tell me about Jesus. Well, my mom and dad go to church. What does that have anything to do now like that right like so when it comes to that we're asking the question who is jesus so parents you are the primary disciple maker not me i am not the primary disciple maker of your kids emphasis on yours all right like, I'm privileged and honored to hang out with our high school students because they're super cool and I love seeing their minds tick and I love seeing their convictions develop and I am not their primary disciple maker. Just making that, making that clear. The next one is, Jesus is not your co-pilot, bro. Okay? <laughs> Jesus is not your co-pilot. That is not the gospel. We just finished walking through the history of Jesus through the lens of John, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is grace appeared, that Jesus saves sinners. He's not your co-pilot. He is God. Another one, the gospel is not group participation. And as much as I love groups, and I love groups, right? Right? not group participation. Whether you regularly attend a group or regularly ask questions, it's not the gospel. So then, what is the gospel? Well, why don't we just look at scripture, right? The Apostle Paul in Romans 4 says this, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In short, Paul is saying Jesus was delivered for our sin and raised for our justification. There's that fancy word or that fancy term called imputed righteousness. That on the cross, Jesus bore our sin. And as a result, there's this thing called the great exchange where he imputes, he gives, he declares you right and just, not based on your merit or works or performance, but his obedience. In his work for you. Paul says that not only did Jesus dwell among us, but that Jesus is God and we are sinners and we need a savior. The gospel is that Jesus died for sinners, that Jesus forgives sinners, that Jesus redeems sinners, and that Jesus transforms sinners. That's what the gospel is. And so whether it's with our closest friends who don't know Jesus or whether it's with one another, we must proclaim, as John says, we must proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to one another and those who don't know. So if you've got friends who are asking questions, praise God. Man, encourage them to keep asking questions and keep bugging them with the gospel. If you've got got friends who are curious, and, and maybe that's some of you, you're here today and you're like, what's this whole Jesus thing? Man, let me tell you that Jesus loves sinners and he entered into human history so that he would die for sinners on your behalf, in your place, paying your penalty and offers you the free gift of salvation. Preach the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. That is what is at stake. Moving forward. I can't remember what the next question on your notes is. I think it's, what has Christianity accomplished? Also, dumb question. I don't know why I thought of it. See, regret things. Okay? The next question i rather pose is, well then, as a result of the gospel and as a result of who Jesus is and what he does, well then, what is he for? What is he after? Jesus, and this is in verse four. In fact, let me just read it. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Jesus is for our joy. I want you to hear that. Jesus is for our joy. Over the last five weeks, uh, man, I've, I've, I've again had the honor uh, and privilege of, of getting to hang out with many of you. And over the course of those five weeks, we get into to, to the question like, hey man, how's your heart and what's going on, Right? And oftentimes, uh, over the course of of this season, some of the questions that keep coming up, or excuse me, some of the responses that keep coming up tend to be responses of of a lack of joy. I'm just trying to figure things out. I'm just trying to do my part. And uh, man, I'm not going, one one said, I remember, uh, I'm not going to bed with joy. I'm not waking up in joy. One of the things that we need to first begin to define is joy. Because joy is not an emotion. Joy is a condition. Here's how I would define it. Joy is our anchor in God's promises despite our circumstances. Circumstances, good or bad, are always going to change. But the Word of God doesn't. That brings comfort to you and I. That doesn't mean it's easy, right? What was the motto at the beginning of the year? Simple, not easy, right? Joy is defined, or joy is our anchor in the promises of God despite our circumstances. Circumstances, good or bad, happiness or sadness, are all temporary. Joy must be what walks us through each one of them, right? It must be what walks us through one of them. And so when we begin to talk about joy, if you're like, man, then I, then I want that. Whether, whether you're a Christian and it's just a hard season right now or you don't know Jesus and you're like, tell me about that joy. Okay, here, here's what it is. Experiencing joy begins with Jesus. If you're going to walk away with anything today, I want you to walk away with that. Experiencing joy begins with Jesus. Now that unpacks this entire sermon because we just walk through who Jesus is and what he does. And in a moment, we're going to walk through how to cultivate that joy. John gives us a couple of things. Experiencing joy begins with Jesus. Not our worldly or selfish satisfaction, but satisfaction in Jesus. In those same conversations, I'll begin to ask people about their joy and the caveat is that I begin to ask them about their one-on-one time with the Lord and then one-on-one time with, with other Christians. And much like the question about the gospel, this is where it gets awkward, right? Much like the question about the gospel, this is, this is where it gets awkward. And so that's what we're going to step into. Because the next question is, if Jesus is for our joy and experiencing joy begins with Jesus, well, then how do we cultivate joy? And John gives us three things. Again, these are going to be repeated throughout our time. And of these three, I want to focus on two. Nevertheless, and I think the reason John repeats these is because he's, again, exposing our hearts, maturing our understanding, and you and I are trying to embrace simple but not easy so, how do we cultivate joy? The first thing that John tells us is that we cultivate joy through the assurance of faith. In other words, what we do now impacts how we view eternity. I want you to listen to uh, the author of Hebrews. This is Hebrews 10, verses 21 and 23. We're going to read a lot of scripture right now. This is what he says. Since we have a great high priest, that is Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confessions of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful." Cultivating joy in our assurance of faith doesn't necessarily begin with us. It begins with Jesus and what he has done for us because he is the one who is faithful. Additionally, throughout Hebrews, the author encourages us to hold fast to the assurance of faith by looking back at what Jesus has done for us. In fact, that's his entire argument concerning the assurance of faith. He is saying you will persevere as you look back to what Jesus has done. Are you discouraged? Look back to what Jesus has done. Man, does it feel like you're alone and isolating? And you're just getting beat up? Look back at what Jesus has done so that you may persevere moving forward. Elsewhere in Ephesians 6, Paul goes on to say that part of our assurance of faith and our perseverance comes through prayer, not just between us and God, but for one another. Our assurance of faith begins with how we live now because it impacts how we view eternity. And what that tells you and me is that our life right now matters. It matters. We're not just living to die. We're living to be more like Jesus. Number two, we cultivate joy through fellowship with the people of God. Again, in verse three, let me actually scroll up. He says, that which which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. One of the ways to determine the condition of our hearts, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, is through fellowship with other believers. Like, I'll I'll give you kind of a quick ending to these two things, right? John is going to say that we cultivate joy through fellowship with God and fellowship with the people of God. Now, I want you to notice in verses 3 and 4, John doesn't say or that these two avenues are how we cultivate joy. Not an option, but how we cultivate joy. And so one of the ways to determine the condition of our hearts, one of the ways to determine if we're cultivating joy is through our fellowship with one another. Now, here's what I want to say about fellowship, because again, we're going to talk about this throughout our time in this, in this epistle. Fellowship, time with one another, ought to be normal to the Christian. Like, I don't know how else to say this Like simply, like in other words, like this is a simple statement. Fellowship ought to be normal, right? I'll give you an example. When I've taught group leader workshops or even member classes, and we get to uh, the area of of our groups, right? This is a good example, I think. And so we get to the area of groups. I'll ask hey, what's your experience with group life? And so people will share their experience, and then I'll say, so what do you do in groups? And inevitably, many of those Christians are like, well, we study the, we study the Word of God together. We, we pray for one another. We, uh, we fellowship. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. What else? Uh, we, you know, they'll quote like Acts 2. We gather in one another's homes. We break bread. Like no one talks like that. Right. And, and, and so I'm like, okay, okay. I mean, again, not wrong. And then it kind of ends and they're like, well, I don't, I don't know what else you want us to like, there's, I don't know what else to say. Right. We're there for one another. And then I'll rephrase the question in an odd way. I think I'll rephrase the question by asking what do I'll say this way. What do non-believers do? oh man, they hang out, they go to the movies, they're at the pub, they're at one another's houses. Like, all of a sudden, it's like super separate. Right, because Christians don't go to the movies, and Christians don't go to one another's houses, and Christians don't go to Roosevelt's, and Christians don't do other things. Fellowship ought to be normal to the Christian. Yes, it does include Bible study, and it does include confession of sin, and it does include us praying for one another. You can go to James five. Yes, it involves all of that. And sometimes I just want to have an argument about the difference between me without you and thrice. If you don't know who they are, they are bands and they play music. That's all you need to know. (laughs) But that's the thing, right? Like it's normal. It's normal fellowship ought to be normal to the Christian. And so, with that being said, much like that first instance of what the gospel is versus what the gospel isn't, I want to walk through the caution, and, I'm, and I say that carefully, uh, I want to walk through the caution of, of ministry formality and actual fellowship. And the reason I say ministry formality, and I want to be cautious with this, like these aren't bad things. Sometimes we just make them to be the main thing. You know what I'm saying? So here's what I would say, the first one is ministries. Churches, uh, lots of churches, we're not uh, immune to this, churches love programs, churches love ministries, fellowship this, fellowship that, uh, sewing, something about baskets, all of these other things, ministries, 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 and that's cool, ministries have their place because every church culture is going to be different. Oftentimes, however, um, I see that individuals just want ministries when really, You should just open up your home and be hospitable. More than anything in the New Testament, we see the gift of hospitality. And I'm not saying open up your home so that you could host a group, open up your home so that you can lead a group. I'm saying just open up your home. How many people in the last three weeks have you had over for dinner? Well, my life's a mess. Yeah, or my house is a mess. Cool. Like that's part of life. How many people have you had over just for dinner? And then as Christians, it's like, well, what are we going to talk about? I don't know, man. Talk about family. Talk about, talk about Jesus. Talk, talk about a bunch of things. Ministries are not bad. Obviously, we're not opposed to them as we have several avenues for them. However, I don't want ministries in our church, I don't want that to be the primary avenue of fellowship. I want it to be hospitality, I want our homes opened up. Well, it's really uncomfortable. I know. There's the gospel, right? (laughs) Number two, or Betty, let me let me go back. And I just want to be clear on that. Ministries aren't bad. I'm not knocking them. Again, obviously we have some, right? But if you're not opening up your home, if you're leaving it to programs, if you're if you're just excusing hospitality so that a structure can take care of fellowship. That's not what the Bible calls hospi- hospitable. Right? I've had uh, people tell me, I had one individual tell me, uh, hey, I have a group of people who, uh, who want to have a Bible study. Okay, cool. So when can you schedule this, this Bible study and when can you be there to teach it? And it was in the fall, and I remember saying, like, I, don't, I don't have time. I don't have time to do that. Uh, not right now. And so the individual then goes on to say, well, so what do we do? I was like, why don't you hang out with them and open your Bibles? And then they said, what are we supposed to study? I don't know, man, pick a book, make a decision, right? And, and then ask, what is Jesus teaching us? That's all I got to say about that, right? Like, ministries aren't bad. Uh, it's just not the only thing, right? We want to develop a culture of hospitality more than anything. Number two, theology versus relationship. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, I love theology. I love diving into theology. I love reading old dead guys. I love being a nerd about theology. And sometimes uh, theological nerds are jerks, right? Uh, And 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, hey, you can have all the knowledge you want. You can have all the faith you want. You can have all these wonderful gifts. But if you don't have love, you're nothing but white noise. You're a loud gong, right? right. Theology, like ministry, certainly has its place. And our theology shapes how we live. Absolutely. And at the same time, we shouldn't use that as an excuse to uh, pull away from relationships just because this person or that person isn't as theologically sound as you think you are. And so you forfeit relationships because your best friend is a dead guy from the 1700s. Right? Right? So cultivate relationships. It, it, it actually kind of points us back to hospitality. The next one is, is what, I, what I see within fellowship, within, within the church, is, is complaining. It's, it's, should, it's, it's not the way I would want to do it. Or that is community. It's not the way I would want to do it. I would want to do it differently. I don't like this method. I don't like this philosophy. And so there's this great deal of complaint surrounding community. And what James tells us is that there is this war raging inside of you because of your sin. And so rather than investing, you complain. And investment is going to require, or not require, but investment is going to have everything that we just talked about. It's going to have relationships. It's going to have hospitality. There is this uh, theological going back and forth in terms of conversation. There is change as we invest in one another. How we cultivate joy is going to be through fellowship with God and fellowship with the people of God. And I see way too many Christians complaining about fellowship, and what it really looks like, and what it really doesn't look like, but have you been faithful to begin with? Have you been faithful to begin with? I want you to listen to this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Here's what he says, we're almost done, I know I've said a lot, and um, I still have more. Anyway, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, that means, like, even when nothing special is happening, when there's no great experience, no discoverable riches, uh, uh, no discoverable riches, but much weakness and small faith and difficulty. If, on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. Again, oftentimes I see Christians or the church, however you want to put that together, I see complaints rather than thankfulness, rather than pressing in to one another with the gospel, not just philosophy or methodology, but pressing into one another with the gospel. Number three, fellowship with God himself. And actually, let me go back to fellowship with the people of God. Again, not knocking the mysteries that we have, not knocking that we have theological nerds, loving all that. It's just, that's not all. The purpose of fellowship isn't programs. The purpose of fellowship is so that we would cultivate joy. And again, John presses into that with the gospel. So when we fellowship together, like for instance, we're going to respond in just a moment through communion. That is an avenue of fellowship. It is so that we would cultivate joy not just the next order of service. It is so that we would cultivate joy. When we gather, whether it's in missional communities or we gather just because we're bored and we want to hang out with one another, it's so that we would press into one another and cultivate joy. Number three, fellowship with God himself. Fellowship with God himself is only possible through Jesus. Remember, that's that's what all of this opening sermon starts with experiencing joy begins with Jesus. So we've unpacked who Jesus is and what Jesus does. Now we're unpacking how we cultivate joy. It is through the assurance of faith. It is through the fellowship with the people of God. And it is through fellowship with God himself. The best way I think I could explain that is actually by reading Jeremiah 15, 16. This is what he says. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, is the word of God the delight of your heart? Is the word of God the delight of your heart? My fear is that we neglect communion with God because it's just not a priority. Well, I'm busy, so is everyone else. That we lack communion with God because we we lack understanding. And I get that. I get that. That's, that's why we actually provide avenues, so that we can ask questions and go back and forth with one another, so that we would cultivate that joy and that understanding. Absolutely. So if you're like, man, I just lack understanding, then, then come talk to me. Yeah, get cut, connected to a group. Ask all of the questions. Do all of the things. We lack communion because maybe we won't articulate it this way, but because God is a genie. When things are great, deuces. When things are rocky, we're rubbing that lamp. God, where are you? Why haven't you listened to me? Why aren't you saving me and rescuing me? See, in our communion with God, we grow in our understanding of God. We recognize our depravity. We depend on God. Scripture is the word of God, not a self-help book. Scripture is the word of God, not a self-help book. And in the next vein or in the opposite side, One of the questions I often get is, what is a really good systematic theology? And my response is, have you read through the entire Bible yet? If The answer is no, go do that first. John is essentially pressing the question, where are you at, Christian? If we're going to cultivate joy, because experiencing joy begins with Jesus, if we're going to cultivate joy, then it begins with God himself, And the people of God. Christian, does the joy you long for begin with Jesus? I'm going to ask you that question one more time. Does the joy you long for begin with Jesus? Is it being cultivated in the assurance of your faith and in fellowship? Remember, John doesn't give us or, it's and. My encouragement to you is to begin begin your response with repentance. Enter into that time with God and with one another right now, today, so that you would repent of sin, so that your eyes would be fixed on Jesus, And so that you would cultivate joy in fellowship with God and in fellowship with one another as we respond to the word of God. And if you're not a Christian, here's here's what I want you to know. I want you to know a couple things. Number one, I'm really glad that you're here. Thank you for hanging out with us. Seriously. Jesus saves sinners and is ready to pardon all who turn to him in belief and repentance. More than happiness, you receive joy. More than simply a life that is better, you receive a life of redemption. Church, does the joy that you long for and the joy you wish others to have begin with Jesus? Let's pray. God, I know I am not the only one who who tends to think about uh, whether or not I am experiencing joy. Sometimes that is because the season that I'm in personally is really loud. Sometimes that is because I've allowed distractions to simply be louder than your word. But I suppose what tends to be encouraging right now is that each one of us experience some of those things each one of us experiences whether or not we are actually experiencing joy. And this morning, you, you, through John, you point us to Jesus, that that joy begins with Jesus. That cultivating joy begins with communion with Jesus and communion with one another. Those are two biblical indicators or those are two biblical uh, tests to see the condition of our heart. And, and if we're honest, God, we, we forget about you and your gospel almost every day. So God, we're gonna just put our sin on the table. God, we're going to put our sin on the table. Be completely exposed. Be completely vulnerable before you. Not so that we would be better Christians, but so that we would be repentant ones. God, whether we know you or not, everybody longs for joy. And through John, you encourage us, you teach us, you exhort us that joy begins with Jesus. So, for the Christian, may we we remember the grace, your grace for us through Jesus. God, for those who don't know Jesus, may they be wrestling with and respond to the question, well, who is Jesus? And Holy Spirit, would you do a work in them? Would you make Jesus known to them this morning? Simple. Simple. Not easy. God, as we move forward, we're we're gonna move forward in response and we begin our response not just through prayer but but tithes and offerings. God, this is where we give you our stuff so that we are not controlled by it, so that we do not give it credit, but that we give you all of the glory. That through our giving, this would be uh, a, a response to your work for us in Christ that this would be a response to our transformation as a result of you Holy Spirit abiding in us and as soon as we're, we're, we're move, we move past that Holy Spirit would you keep pressing into our hearts with the message of the gospel as we prep our minds for communion God we love you and we thank you for this time Amen.